0: Season 2, episode number 3. Hello there, I'm Greg Mashburn and I'm the occasional podcaster. I spent most of my life working behind a microphone as a radio broadcaster, an audio engineer, and a news reporter. Well, now that I'm retired, I've discovered podcasting. And I've picked up a microphone once again to present my occasional conversations with folks just like you. So, thanks again for the emails I've been receiving about the podcast. I appreciate your comments and your suggestions for future programs. Many of you have uh, indicated that you enjoyed our recent conversation with Muskogee historian Roger Bell. It seems that more than a few of my listeners were interested in the dusty days of Muskogee's beginnings and its early growth through the late 18th and early 19th century if you've not heard Rogers' episode yet, you can find it on my website. It's at www.occasionalpodcaster.com. Also, uh, be sure to look for Rogers' Facebook page, Muskogee 150, if you would like to learn more about the early days of our city. Barbara McAllister is our very special guest on this episode of The Occasional Podcaster. In recognition of Women in History Month, we present Barbara as a very important part of Cherokee culture, a recipient of the Cherokee Medal of Honor in 1999, a world-class mezzo soprano who has performed in countless operas and musical events around the world, now teaching her craft to a new generation of young students for the Cherokee Nation. In addition to her career as an opera and concert soloist, we should note that Barbara is also a renowned Native American visual artist. Her paintings have been shown at the Five Civilized Tribes Museum and uh, the Jacobson House here in Oklahoma, the Wharton Art Gallery in Philadelphia, Bullocks in Los Angeles. Um, Many of her paintings are now in private collections throughout the United States and Europe. We think that you are going to really enjoy today's conversation with our guest, Barbara McAllister.
1: If you have an idea for a future episode of The Occasional Podcaster, let us know. Find The Occasional Podcaster on Facebook and Instagram. Of course, you can always send an email to occasionalpodcaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and perhaps present your idea on an upcoming episode of The Occasional Podcaster.
0: Our guest today is Barbara McAllister. Barbara, hi. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Hi, Greg. It's nice to see you and an honor to be invited to be on your
0: podcast. Well, thank you so much. Barbara, is, she's a lifelong friend of mine. She's also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She is also a world-class opera singer, a world traveler, she has led such an interesting life and still continues to do so and i and i'm just so pleased that you're going to give me a little a little of your time today let's Thank start you. for for those who may not be familiar with you although i can't imagine who that would be but for those who who really aren't sure just who you are who is Barbara McAllister? What's your What's your brief thumbnail history?
1: Mm, my brief thumbnail history, um, I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and proud of it. I had fabulous parents who loved music. Um, my father was a trained classical singer, and my mother was a fabulous classical pianist. And so I grew up in a household of beautiful music. And just proud of my parents, and if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have uh, gotten into the world of music, more than likely.
0: Now, you mentioned your father briefly. Uh, Your father was also, he was a medical doctor here in Muskogee for many years, was he not? My
1: father was uh, called the beloved radiologist, and for a long time, when he first came to Muskogee, he was um, a general practitioner. He was uh, University of Nebraska.
0: Ah, graduate okay.
1: in medicine and he met my mother on a blind date in omaha nebraska
0: well i worked out well didn't mm-hmm. it <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now i also seem to remember that early in life you had a you had a great love affair with horses
1: i did i loved horses and of course i grew up back in probably before television but i would hear um horses hooves going down the street with on fondulac it was now Martin Luther King Street, back then it was Mm Fondulac, and I would hear the clippity-clop of horses' hooves, and I would run out the door, and it would be uh, one of the men uh, with a horse and wagon delivering vegetables down the street, and I would always ask if I could uh, drive the horse or get up in the wagon with him, and once in a while he would allow me to Uh, get into the wagon or drive the horse and Mm -hmm. so I fell in love with horses and uh, (laughs) would have dreams of of um, horses galloping up 13th street which back then was a dirt street wow I loved those love those memories Uh,
0: and and your um your fascination with horses continued to grow as you grew up I know that that you were am I remembering right were you a a barrel racer Dude. i was
1: a barrel racer i i got my first horse when i was eight years old and it was a christmas present his name was pete and he was a registered um, hamiltonian trotter that had been injured and so couldn't race anymore and bought it actually from dr and mrs horn uh, who had a ranch and um he showed up on Christmas morning <laughs> to my front door. Wow. And my parents bought the, a saddle, um, black leather saddle with little silver studs and a bridle that had been on the, the two statues at um, Bullygood Saddle Shop. That's where they got the saddle and the bridle that had been on the little black pony that is at that um, the museum, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and wow. so uh, people can still see the two, the little black pony and the Palomino.
0: Now, actually, I'm fortunate. I have seen photographs of you on horseback, and and you were uh, apparently quite the equestrian.
1: Well, that's what the. Would say at the rodeo grounds that <laughs> I could ride a horse like a burr stuck on a saddle blanket. Yes, but okay. I, I learned to fall off by standing up in the saddle or on the saddle. And one time the horse took a step forward and I did not. Uh oh. And I crashed to the ground. Uh, my dad would take me to the roundup club on Wednesday and Saturday, and he was a slow driver.
0: <laughs> he just took
1: his time. I say, Dad, hurry, hurry, hurry! We're going to be late. Let's
0: get there. We're burning daylight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that you are a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I know that that culture is is important to you today. Were you mm-hmm. Were you raised in, a, in a, a, a culturally aware home? Did the Cherokee aspect of your life play a, a big role in your youth, or did you discover that later? Or
1: well, I knew the minute I heard what my dad said is a baby were Cherokee uh his mother was a Cherokee citizen but died when my dad was two years old oh. but my granddad would always talk about Susie Severe, and my granddad never remarried because and uh, he loved her so much so mm-hmm. um he was my granddad white man was my only living grandparent wow <clears throat> when I was born but yes I did know and um I think my father spoke a little bit of Cherokee that he had learned.
0: Uh, you said you started singing at about 13, started taking voice lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you relate that story to us? How did that happen? When
1: I was in the church choir, the old First Presbyterian Church. And when I was six, I was put into the children's choir. Mm-hmm. And our choir director was Gene Parker. Jean Parker's daughter is Jennifer Neely. I don't know if you know Jennifer and Jim Neely. But I heard Jean sing, and I thought, I want to sing like that. So I remember going up to her and saying, I want to learn to sing and sing as beautifully as you do. And so I began, even though I was extremely shy, um, I began studying with her when I was 13, 12 or 13.
0: So then she was your first instructor. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, because I was shy being on a horse it made me be someone. Well, you were head
0: and shoulders above everyone else. Yes, <laughs>
1: and I loved horseback riding, and I wanted to be, a, I always said I wanted to be a jockey, but I got too tall and probably a little overweight for uh, being a jockey. Mm. And um, I just loved horses, and but I started singing and uh, learning the classical repertoire, but also hearing... Those great country western songs that you hear out at the rodeo arenas. There you go. And so I would mimic uh, those singers like Teresa Brewer. I don't want to reche romance. I don't want to the If you're careless with your kisses, find another turtle dove. Oh that my! That was one of my favorites. And your cheating heart. Mm-hmm. I don't know who sang Hank that. Hank Williams. Your cheating heart. That's I loved the one. that one. That's so the one. So then I decided, well, I'll get a guitar. So. My parents bought me an electric guitar, and I learned a couple of songs, huh. but not. I never learned really. I remember C chord, F chord, G seven, few of the D seven.
0: That's ninety nine percent of all the chord structures in rock and roll or country western. If you know those four chords, you can play anything. <laughs>
1: One, four, five. (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly. I keep trying to tell my guitar students the secret is one, four, five. If you just know that. Mm -hmm. You can even bang that out on piano and and play for most anybody. Yes. At any rate. That's another show. Uh, When did it first occur to you that you could sing for a living and and make a career? I
1: never dreamed about it. I loved painting, and I thought, well, and I had a lot of praise from my teachers in high school. For my artworks. Mm-hmm. And I was in the same class with Jerome and Johnny Tiger. So I thought, wow, well, maybe I can be an artist. I had a choice to go to art school in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, which I had visited with my parents and beautiful art community. <clears throat> and then I thought, no, Jean Parker wants me to go to, to TU first to study voice. So I started it TU in voice. I transferred to Oklahoma City University, and I had a, a, a better teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still terrified to sing, and I <clears throat> swear to this day that on my senior recital, she spiked my glass of water with something. <laughs> because the last song I sang was The Bird and the Beast. And I really let it fly. I don't
0: <laughs> Well there you go. You're listening to the Occasional Podcaster. I'm Greg Mashburn and our guest is Barbara McAllister. All those
1: summers I was somehow would be hired to do summer stock theater. Oh, oh I did it. I would go on stage, I'd forget my name, I'd forget the song. You're hired. How does that happen?
0: (laughs) uh, Apparently, it was just meant to be.
1: (laughs) It was meant to be. I was doing summer stock theater Mm -hmm. and um, Dallas Summer Musicals, Central City, Colorado, and basically, I think because uh, Mrs. Seelberg, who was my teacher, knew had those connections that you really need and by doing the summer stock theater, then you start slowly learning what it's like to be on stage.
0: Gathering up a little stage presence.
1: I think I would have been very happy in the old days of radio, like my my master voice teacher lee and his wife sally did a lot of radio performing and i, I loved it
0: Summerstock. so did you work with anybody that we would know can I've you toss up, a few names around
1: uh, carol burnett i learned a lot watching her i watched your <laughs> show all the time but we did uh, calamity jane in dallas summer musicals and she was the calamity jane mm-hmm. and she had remarkable work ethic Ginger Rogers. The dancer, yes. Uh, the opera singer Rosalind Elias came in for showboat. Then Central City, Colorado, I met more opera singers. Mm-hmm. Santa Fe Opera was later when I was an apprentice there.
0: So you, you certainly had a busy life. I think I recall a story about packing up the Mustang and driving cross-country.
1: I had worked with Clue Gilliger from Muskogee in, uh James Drury and Clue Gilliger started um, music theater in North Carolina. They said, if you're ever at loose ends, come out to LA. So I packed up my Ford Mustang and went to LA. It was great. I had uh, great apartments and um, met my master voice teacher through an acting teacher named Sandra Rogers and my cousin, who was an actor in Hollywood Park. So they said, come meet Lee Sweetland and Sally Sweetland. So I went to their home and I sang a few notes and they took me on as a voice student. And they brought out my big, dramatic, mezzo voice. There came my personality through the voice. So the shyness that I'd always had um, disappeared with the confidence level that I had achieved through their patient work with me. When you're doing a um, character. Yeah, you're um,
0: embodying that character. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and
1: so if I was doing Ortrude, uh, who was not a nice person, I always got good reviews for that, saying, you're just a natural (laughs) in this character. (laughs) A natural bad guy. That's my real personality. Ah, There There you
0: go. I get the impression that most of your opera was done in Germany.
1: I had, uh, in L.A., auditioned for the National Lauren Zachary Opera Competition, and I didn't win the grand prize, but I got the next the first prize which was a trip to Europe to Germany to audition. I auditioned for one agent but then I developed a horrible cold and so a friend of mine I knew two people in all of Europe and one of them was I had met with Santa Fe Opera Company when we were apprentices and she said come visit me in Koblenz Germany. So I got on a train not speaking one word of German went to Koblenz and she said we have a an opening for solo and chorus in Koblenz. So I auditioned the next morning for uh, the solo chorus. Koblenz was one of the two theaters that had solo and chorus. So you would do chorus in one opera, solo in another one, back and forth. So I got hired immediately.
0: And, and basically you build experience both ways. Mm-hmm. And it oh, just, yeah. It just and, adds to your notebook. Absolutely.
1: And I would do a big role, the uh, Rake's Progress um, uh, the Ulrika, and then some small roles. So I was there for three years in Koblenz. Then I auditioned for another theater in Passau and got hired for pure solo. A couple of years there, I went to audition for um, Flensburg, Germany. And that was, uh, we did a lot of, uh, called Obstetscher, where you have to go to other theaters around. And so I did that for two years. And then the head of the theater in Bremerhaven heard me on stage in Flensburg and hired me to go to Bremerhaven And I was there three years. I just thought, I've got to sing. And I always, if it's not in your heart, then don't do it. Mm -hmm. You've got to do it with everything in your heart, uh, not for the business end. And nowadays the kids are taught the business and you're you're in it to make money. Bookkeeping 101. Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. It it never occurred to me. I I never thought about the financial side. Maybe I should have. Well, you know. But I didn't. I did it because I thought I would never be able to sing. And here I was in a, a nice, really nice career in Germany and singing everything in German. So I wrote Prince Ranier in Monte Carlo, and I said, Dear Prince, do you have an opera company? I knew about the ballet company. An agent called me and said, Yeah, there is an opera company. When you're around in Italy or wherever, just call us up and we'll hear you. When, when you're in Germany in repertory theater, you're on stage every day for 10, 10 years. Wow. Every day you start singing full out at 10 o'clock in the morning. You have a break at 1.30. Everybody runs to eat. Then you can go home for a couple of hours and um, rest or learn the next stopper you have to do. <clears throat> so it's just ongoing. So I did that 10 years. And one of my last reviews was better than ever. And, and so I knew my technique worked after yeah, 10 years there. But but,
0: but what a regimen.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Day in, incredible. day out. And it either makes you or breaks you, and it, it made me because... Well,
0: one thing's for certain, you have to love it to do it.
1: Absolutely. I was I was starting to guess in different theaters, they call you up and say, we need somebody for this role tonight. So if you don't have a performance that night and you don't have a rehearsal, then you're free to go and make a little extra money on the side. And
0: and, and ostensibly, this is a role you already know. <laughs> oh, yes. You don't just walk on and start doing no. cold reads.
1: <laughs> uh, no, it has to be one you know. Yeah. And then, after Monte Carlo, my theater, I had another year contract, and they said, you can't, we won't let you go to Monte Carlo. Um, So I, whether or not it was stupid, I said, no, then I have to go to Monte Carlo. So I gave up a whole year contract. It's one of those things you look back and think, why did I do that? Well,
0: but did you enjoy Monte Carlo? Oh, yeah. If you enjoyed it, it was
1: worth it. It was one on my bucket list, I did not meet the prince. I didn't meet Prince Albert, but um, I, I know that there was the spirit there of Grace Kelly. When I auditioned, I looked up into the, the theater is exquisite. I looked up into the one of the first tier where the prince normally sits, and there was a lady up there, blonde hair up on her head, and I started singing, a ta, and I knew from that first note, I nailed it. And I thought, they're going to hire me. And I looked up and just sang everything to that whatever, that vision person. or person. Yeah. And so when I finished with two arias, the director, John Wardler, came over to me, and he said, we want you uh, for uh, Meg Page and Falstaff. Excellent. So
0: So how I, long were you there?
1: I was there... W- most things are a month to two months. Most most guestings. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, so I made pretty good money, and just loved being there. I sang with uh, Iliana Kortrubash, who was one of the big singers at that time, and um, Frank Lopardo, who ended up going to the mat. <clears throat> Kortrubash was already at the mat, and. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to have to move. So I came to New York, and then the first job I got was Boston Opera New England, which was a tour singing uh, The Marriage of Figaro and um, doing kind of a comedic role. And then I did not know all of American opera is through audition. So every time your one role is over, you have to go audition for the next one. So that means you've got to have an agent, right? So... I, find I had an agent, and uh, she was very loud, and I thought, <laughs> she's mean. And I don't know if I want a mean agent. No, she, was, she was, was probably, she was
0: just assertive on behalf of her <laughs> she clientele. She was a
1: New York assertive. And I should have kept her, but I thought, I don't want somebody who's mean all the time. So I left her and got another one. I worked steadily for a while, getting Arizona Opera, different places around the United States, uh, Washington National Opera at Kennedy Center. Uh, I sang Menotti's 50th anniversary of the consul, his opera, the beautiful opera, The Consul. And um, that was because of Ed Purrington, who had been head of Tulsa Opera. Ed Purrington hired me to do a Valkyrie, so I flew in from Germany. I had somehow had that month off and flew in and did the only Wagnerian opera ever put on in Tulsa Opera. Really? And I was in that one. Uh, doing, Did you have
0: to wear the helmet hat with the oh horns?
1: Yeah, and carry the spear. <laughs> and uh, we got hired out of New York to go to Hong Kong to sing. Um, see, the role was Azucena Il Trovatore, Verdi opera. And we were there during 9 11. Oh my. There were only three Americans in the whole cast, and one of them flew home immediately. Mm. The very next plane he could get on, and that was the last one, probably out of Hong Kong. And I called my brother, and uh, my brother John, and he said, you're there to do a job. It's all you can do. So we did the job, and we were there one or two months, and then flew back to New York after 9-11. I was still doing solo work, but my coach who i had worked with a vocal coach at the met linda hall said why have you never auditioned for the met chorus and i said just never thought of it and i'm too old to be in it i was past the age limit and so she said well the next round of auditions which is once a year audition and so i was one of something like 400 auditioning that's every year they hear that many and um i was next to last to audition about five till five and i got a call the next day that i'd gotten in to part-time um, my age limit was over what they Here. would have hired for full-time. Yeah. And um, so I, I said, that's great. It kind of saved me. And then I got that, but I was still, somehow it worked out that I was able to do the Kennedy Center. I did a lot of other, at the Smithsonian, and two or three things, concerts there. Mm-hmm. And then I was still doing, I think I did Tulsa Opera, a couple of things there. And still was able to keep the job at the Met. So it was part-time and we did Russian, French, Italian
0: You're listening to The Occasional Podcaster. I'm Greg Mashburn and our guest is Barbara McAllister.
1: Is it performer, you have to be able to, opera singer, you have to be able to sing whatever language is put in front of you. So I was in Italy a lot, uh, learning my roles. I had to sing uh, Il Trovatore in Italian in France, actually, and in uh, Reims, R-E-I-M-S, the city of Reims near Paris. And I got hired, and they thought I'd done the role in Italian, and I didn't bother to ask them. I had never done it in Italian. And the tenor and the baritone were from Italy. They looked like mafioso. (laughs) And they In they just stared at me. I thought, oh no, they're not going to like me. Well, the minute they heard me, they were my friends, and mm-hmm. uh, because my voice is trained in the Italian school of singing and it's a technique that goes very far back. And so, anyway, I did the Met for five years off and on, saved me <laughs> because of the pension money. Sure,
0: sooner or later, we all have to worry about the pension a little bit, yeah, yeah,
1: but I loved I enjoyed really the first three or four years to be in the met course you're you're you have to do what they say you can't you have no ability to show off or to do anything
0: you don't get to be a diva you
1: cannot be a diva and i remember i didn't know how to put a wig on and i said i have no idea how to put that they just throw them at you they come in and each chorus member gets a wig <laughs> And it's like, what do I do with this? I said, yeah. who's going to help me? And mm. they they let me have it. You learn to do it yourself. And I mm. said, oh, well, I remember one of the part-time choristers, I think it was Les Troyens. her wig shot across everybody on stage like a boomerang. <laughs> This the rubber band cross, turned loose. The rubber band popped, or something, or she hadn't put it on properly. One of the funniest things I've ever seen on stage. Oh, it's what I love about stage. Unless it happens to me, opera is so serious that when something goes wrong, if it it's not dangerous, it's funny.
0: It's it's like it's the comic relief.
1: There's one story of uh, somebody doing Carmen, the role of Carmen, which I did in in French and German. He forgot his gun, Don Jose to kill her, and then he ends up choking her. Oh. And then a backstage prop guy decided, well, he doesn't have the gun. I've got it. Pow! And he was choking <laughs> Carmen to death. <laughs> Stories like that are just priceless.
0: So what brought you back to Muskogee?
1: My apartment building moved me to another apartment. And,
0: and this was where?
1: New York City. Okay. 19th floor. I had a little balcony outside... The 19th floor, finally the apartment was peaceful. I didn't have anybody on one side that was noisy in the middle of the night, that kind of stuff, and finally had the peace and quiet. And I walked out onto my balcony one day and stood there, and I thought, I, this terrifies me to be up this high. I don't want to be on an elevator anymore. I don't want to be up 19 stories above the earth. I want my feet on the ground. The, the Met had changed also the... Um, choral director, the choir director, and... I didn't want to have to go through that again, another audition. And I just thought, I think it's time to retire. Okay,
0: so you decide you don't want to be on the 19th floor anymore.
1: I wanted to come home Mm. to Muskogee, Oklahoma. I came here and I didn't know what I was going to do. And my brother, John, uh, he had moved here. So I stayed with uh, he and his girlfriend for a couple of months. And I'm not used to living with anyone. And my brother, John, said, well, you can get a job at Walmart being a greeter. I said, with all my years of knowledge of the human voice, I mean, I studied with the greatest teacher on earth.
0: Give me that line real quickly. Hello. Welcome to Walmart.
1: Hello. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Walmart. May I help you? You would have been great. I would have been really good. You would have. And I don't know how I ended up over at the Cherokee tribe, but I met uh, Chief Chad Smith Mm -hmm. and Dr. Neil Morton sat me down. Well, Chad first. And they hired me.
0: <clears throat> Chad and, was, uh, he was chief when I went to work for the Cherokee Nation. Really, he he was my first chief.
1: And my first chief. He was so nice. And so they hired me. And so I would go over there every day and sit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look at your watch. Look at my watch. Yes. Okay. When did you start taking on students?
1: Uh, I've sung my whole life. Why can't I teach voice? So I got hired to teach. That's how it all started. Since I've been here, I haven't you know, it's like now I, I really am content doing what I'm doing and mm-hmm. I wouldn't really even want to perform, but my students are all ready to perform.
0: They're carrying you on.
1: They're carrying me on. Yeah. Caitlin Morton and Austin Jones will be graduating from Oklahoma State University in music. And Caitlin's already got jobs lined up, at least three or four. One will be in uh, Washington, D.C. Wow. And she goes back again to D.C. Then she's doing Jared Tate's opera shell shaker she studied with me five years before going to ocu and because that's where i had gone to school now i have two senior boys graduating tenors both have (laughs) gorgeous
0: voices i have been fortunate to be able to hear a few of your students over the past few years i recorded a few things for you Mm -hmm. for your students it must be the quality of the instruction because they just they perform beautifully and seamlessly
1: Well, thank you. I know what I'm doing. Let's put it that way. And I know that this technique works, and I'm watching it with these young people just grabbing onto it.
0: Well, Barbara McAllister, I look at the (laughs) clock, and our time is running so short, but I want to tell you what a pleasure this has been. I am honored to have known you for as many years as I have. We go all the way back to the Five Tribes Museum in in a photo session years and years ago, I've said this before, and I'm proud to say it again, you were my first paying customer as a commercial photographer and I shot publicity photos of you in front of the Five Tribes Museum. You
1: did beautiful beautiful work.
0: Oh your check is in the mail. Barbara McAllister thank you for being with us and sharing part of your story. I know we didn't touch on everything but I I, I wanted to get a sense of your wonderful career in music And, and as an example of someone who has and I don't want to use the word struggled but you have worked so diligently to Do what you love through your whole life.
1: I tell my students, don't ever take no for an answer. If that's what you want, go for it. Find a way to do it.
0: From the lips of Barbara McAllister, and that's a good place to say thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. If you have an idea for a future episode of The Occasional Podcaster, please let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Of course, you can always send an email to occasionalpodcaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and perhaps present your idea on an upcoming episode of The Occasional Podcaster.
0: Well, that's another episode of The Occasional Podcaster. I'm Greg Mashburn, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, and Google, nearly anywhere you find your podcasts. My thanks to Barbara McAllister for being my guest on this edition of The Occasional Podcaster. If you like the program, and if you can make a small donation to help me defray expenses, please visit occasionalpodcaster.com and click on the coffee cup in the lower left-hand corner of the page. I produce this podcast as a community service, and I have no sponsors, nor do I charge guests to appear. I cover production and web hosting costs out of my own pocket. It's okay if you can't or just prefer not to donate, but whatever you choose, please continue to listen to the occasional podcaster.